Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we first talk to Andrew Simon. He's the author of the book, Media of the Masses, about uh, the distribution and impact of cassettes in Egypt. And then we turn to a panel discussion about the effects of the of the devastating earthquake uh, which hit Turkey and uh, northern Syria. Um, we hear from Hasret Dikiji Bilgin of Bilgi University. We talk to Liesel Hintz of Johns Hopkins Sites, Rana Hori of the University of Illinois, and Riva Dingra of Harvard University and the Brookings Institution. Uh, thanks for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. On this week's book segment, we talk to Andrew Simon, the Middle Eastern Studies Program at Dartmouth College and author of the brand new uh, Stanford University Press book, Media of the Masses, Cassette Culture in Modern Egypt. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark, for this invitation. I'm a big fan of the podcast, and it's a pleasure to be here with you today. Well, it's great to have you on. This is such an interesting book and uh, it covers so much ground. Uh, tell us a little bit about it and uh, what you were trying to accomplish and how the book came about. Sure. So it's appropriate that we're having this conversation now, I think, a few days following the fall of Hosni Mubarak back in 2011, because the inspiration for the book is the 2011 Egyptian Revolution. Uh, a couple of weeks after graduating undergrad, I flew from North Carolina to Cairo for this intensive Arabic fellowship that took place at AUC's old campus right on the border of Tahrir Square. And that fellowship just so happened to coincide with that revolution in 2011, with the square becoming the epicenter for mass demonstrations. So I ended up missing a lot of class. I ended up experiencing a lot of those uh, mass protests firsthand. And it was those events that really directed my attention to sound and its importance, as well as mass media. So seeing the revival of older artists, seeing the, the birth of new artists, um, seeing poets uh, set different verses to song, all of these things really piqued my interest in acoustic culture. So when I left Cairo for grad school, uh, I took a bunch of different seminars, wrote papers on uh, particular artists like Sheikh Hamem, wrote a paper on uh, Salafis, ultra-Orthodox Muslims in Egypt, wrote a paper on Shabi music, came time for the dissertation, took a step back, realized the thing connecting all these different things were cassette tapes. And it was at that point that I set out to write a history of cassette technology that ended up becoming a history of modern Egypt. Because when I went to Egypt and started reading all of these weekly periodicals like Rosa Youssef and Akhrsa, every single issue over the course of 20 plus years, I saw cassettes surfacing in all of these surprising places. When it came to uh, crime reports, smuggling, the making of the modern home, all of these different contexts. And so it was really at that moment that I set out to think about how can I write a history of a nation through the window of this ordinary technology? Um, so that was the, the motivation for the project. That's really interesting. There's two different themes running through here. Uh, one is about the importance of sound and the argument that this is neglected within uh, much uh, political science and history of, of the Middle East. And the other is about the, the the physicality of this object, the cassette. Let's talk about the first one first, then come to the second one. Sure. So in terms of sound, I mean, I think when sound is discussed in the case of Middle East scholarship, a lot of great work has been done by people coming from a religious studies background or anthropologists. 
And the overwhelming amount of attention uh, has been on Islamic sounds. So one work that immediately comes to mind, especially in the case of audio cassettes, is Charles Hirschkin's The Ethical Soundscape, this wonderful book on Islamic sermons. And something that I really wanted to do was to expand upon that to acknowledge the wide range of acoustic content that was in circulation and being produced in Egypt at this point in time. Because one could kind of walk away from that work thinking, oh, everyone is listening to Islamic sermons all the time. And in reality, people would listen to an Islamic sermon, then they would listen to Michael Jackson, then they would listen to Ahmed Adawaya, then they would listen to Sheikh Kish, then they would listen to Amwash Sadat, the Beatles, Rolling Stones, Madonna, all of these things were in circulation. In terms of sound and history, I think one thing that's critically important is that if we end up writing about the past in a silent manner, we end up really missing out how people in the past, like we're doing right now on this podcast, uh, apprehended the world around them through all of the faculties at their disposal. And so something that I tried to do in the book is really to highlight the complexity of people's sensory worlds by taking sound seriously as an avenue of academic inquiry, as opposed to a narrative detail that we use to right. complement something that we already know. In terms of the materiality of cassettes, I think something that's significant well, before, we, before here, we get to the cassettes, though, yeah, yeah. Um, let, let's talk a little bit more about this, because one of the things which is fascinating in the book is really tracing through what you call these urban soundscapes um, and just really how Cairo changes um, as this technology brings different sounds and put it puts it at the disposal of individuals. Yeah, so something is, uh, in terms of this moment, I would say, in Egypt's history, this the, the recent past, the 70s, 80s, going into the 90s, this is a, a very dynamic time in the country. And this is often a period that serves as almost really only historical context for the Arab Spring, <laughs> rather than as a, a subject of study in its own right. So I wanted to write about it as more than a couple page precursor to what would happen in 2011. I think when people have focused on this, it's been overwhelmingly on momentous events, things like the 1967 war, the 73 war, the consolidation of power under Nasser, Sadat, Mubarak, and then Islam, the Islamic revival, Muslim Brotherhood. So I wanted to really tell a different story. I wanted to focus on the mundane, things like music, people challenging ruling regimes, and then shifting the focus from the religious to the profane. And I think one of the things that is a, a central focus is the advent of mass consumer culture in the aftermath of Egypt's economic opening. And the birth of consumer culture coincides exactly with the creation of Egypt's cassette culture. So I wanted to offer a cultural history then of Egypt's economic opening, something that we assume to be very much top-down, financial-focused. And part of that story that you were just alluding to there is the oil boom. And so we have an unprecedented number of Egyptians that in the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, traveling across the entirety of the Arab world. And then they're not only sending money back home in the form of remittances, something that other scholars have explored, they're also buying things and returning with material objects. And in terms of what they purchased, the two most frequently acquired items were electric fans and dual cassette players. This is something that was so commonplace. It's become a cliche in Egyptian cinema. It's something that showed a, a number of caricatures and cartoons from the period. And so then the transnational travel of so many Egyptians at this point in time, inspired by the oil boom, really helps usher in 
Egypt's cassette culture and this wider culture of consumption that I try to uh, explore in the book. And it also then brings to the fore this idea of a a modern home. This is something that in the past was very much rooted in um, this idea of education, what made one modern, the Afendeya, all these studies on that topic. Here, it's not about the people in the home. It's about the objects in the home, with cassette players being at the forefront of those technologies. One thing which was interesting that you pointed out is it's not just to the Gulf, right, this migration. It's also Libya is a huge destination. Iraq is a huge destination. And people are listening to the same music, the the same artists, and uh, thanks to these cassettes. Precisely. I mean, we have Egyptians going across North Africa. We have them going into the Levant. We have them going to Iraq. And this migration continues really all the way up until even the Gulf War, where we have Egyptians returning from Kuwait, crossing uh, by land through Jordan, returning across the Red Sea. And when they're deboarding these ferries and they left oftentimes in a hurry, being able to carry very little, we have photographs of them holding cassette boom boxes because those were the objects that were meaningful to them, that were mobile enough that they could bring home with them. So this is also a larger story of mass migration from um, a, a very uh, culturally grounded perspective. Yeah, it's 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 interesting to kind of imagine uh, Cairo not being a cacophony of honking horns and uh, and and music playing. But I mean, I think you you really do a nice job of tracing that shift. And also noise pollution mm-hmm. and this idea, realizing this has a much longer history, and that it's not only environmental in nature; it's also very classist in terms of what counts as noise. So one could never listen to someone like Um Kulthum the voice of Egypt, many listeners may be familiar with her, too loudly. Mm-hmm. But other artists are always dismissed and written off as noise. So when it comes to the politics of, of that noise pollution, that's something that I also try to um, look at. So now let's go to the materiality of it. And uh, you've already started talking about it in terms of consumption and uh, you know the people bringing them home. But let's talk about the cassettes themselves and the cassette players and, uh, as you put it, like the biography of an object. Yeah, so I think there's a, a couple of key features when it comes to cassette technology um, in, in any context, also outside of Egypt. So in terms of the device itself, it's highly portable. So when it comes to circulation, we have cassette tapes moving from Siwa to the Sinai. We have them traveling across the entirety of Egypt, well beyond Egypt's borders, ending up in places like the U.S., Europe, the Gulf, Asia. Really, this is a worldwide movement that's taking place. And one of the things that's advertised very early on in the case of um, these notices that are appearing for companies like Samsung, Toshiba, Philips in Egypt, they refer to cassettes as a movable friend as how they market them. So this idea of mobility is ingrained from the very start. In addition to that, affordability and durability. So tapes compared to other technologies, like let's say a television set cost very little allowing many different people to purchase them with ease. Even if people couldn't afford cassette technology immediately when it debuted, there were savings clubs where they pulled money together to purchase them. Shops offered credit and loans to purchase them. But compared to a lot of other devices, like like the TVs, like washing machines, like these other objects, they're very affordable. Hmm. Usability. This is the other key theme. So anyone, irrespective of their education, their social class, their location, gender, age, can record their voice and reach a mass audience for the first time in Egypt's modern history. And this is something that I really tried to highlight in the book because a lot of people think of these things in terms of attributing them to social media. 
And that social media was the first time that all of a sudden anyone could create culture, circulate information, challenge ruling regimes. We see all of this in the case of the Arab Spring, especially. No, cassettes did this decades prior. So one of the things that I'm trying to do is really question the newness of new media like the internet. And also when it comes to cassette technology and technologies more generally, the overwhelming focus is on the invention of technologies. So, so often it's the cassette tape was invented in 1963 by Phillips, by this engineer, Lou Adams, that then created this device by taking all these different steps and here are the blueprints. The invention in my book is a bullet point in the broader story. I'm interested in what happens after an idea becomes an object, after a concept becomes a commodity, after something travels way, way far away from the walls of its workshop in Europe to a place like Egypt. So all of these things are things Auden's envisioned in terms of mobility, affordability, usability, but what he could not possibly anticipate is how the technology that he engineers basically would shatter state control yeah. of Egyptian media and enable anyone for the first time ever to become a cultural producer. And that then sets in motion, as you you detailed uh, throughout the book, some at one level, quite familiar, and others quite specific um, battles over culture and what counts as acceptable music, and you know, basically, what's music and what's noise. Yeah, and what what is the objective of culture, as well? I mean, I, I think something here is in the case of Egypt, culture was very much about the making of model citizens. It was so so it was supposed to be something that was educational, something that was enlightening. And also the state is wielding a number of different mechanisms to control the shape that culture is assuming and also who is producing culture in the first place. So, I mean, in the case of Egypt, when it comes to radio, radio is state controlled going back to the really like this moment in the 1930s. And so we have different tiers within state controlled Egyptian radio that are approving lyrics to songs prior to them being recorded. That's called the text assembly, very Orwellian nature. That's its actual name. And then we have songs being recorded, then then being brought to a listening committee, which then permits it or not the vast majority of the time. Then we have it going to the discretion of individual radio stations, which then make another cut before any voice reaches a mass audience. And this is something that's public knowledge in Egypt. We have radio officials coming out, giving interviews in the press saying, oh, there's three different tiers of performers. There's people like Umko Thum, she's first class. We'll play her several times a day. We then have people like this artist, they're pretty good. We'll play them a couple of times a week. The thing to realize is the vast, vast majority of people were never played. This is as if you turned on the radio in the US and you only heard like uh, Frank Sinatra and Elvis or something. Mm -hmm. With cassettes, all of a sudden you hear countless different voices that are being transmitted on informal cassettes as well. Tapes that are being pirated, that are being circulated, that are being produced by these smaller amateur outlets. And then all of those productions are not only circumventing and challenging state-controlled radio, they're also contesting things like censorship. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to cassettes gaining ground in this moment in the 70s and 80s, we have an Office of Art Censorship in Cairo. And we have this interview that's given, this is something I love, by the director of this office, who basically says, listen, a lot of people are attacking us for not being able to censor this contentious content. We're in a two-bedroom apartment in Garden City, 
We have seven cassette recorders and 15 employees, and we're responsible for screening every single cassette that's produced in Egypt and every cassette that crosses into Egypt's national borders. A complete impossibility. So we see tapes defying censorship. And then we also finally have this thing called public culture, a Sukhafa al-Gamahariya that's in Egypt at the time. This is a state engineered program where we have state appointed officials um, creating culture houses, culture clubs, culture palaces, uh, culture caravans that would go out into the countryside and stage like Shakespearean plays to try to educate people. And the culture that most people are coming into contact with is not this top-down state-engineered culture. It's what's circulating on cassette tapes. So we have all these clashes then that are that are playing out. So you you focus on a couple of different styles of music at different eras that uh, become popular: Shabi music, the um, uh, the Maraganat, uh, more, much later. Tell us a little bit about this and kind of the very specific kinds of musical cultures that then become enabled by this cassette culture sure. beyond, uh, uh, along so, with Michael Jackson, of course. Yes. So we cannot forget Michael Jackson. I actually have a few of um, his mixtapes in my collection <laughs> that I'm going to be making public later this year uh, oh, in, in a digital okay. archive for anyone to access. Yeah. That's something I'm, I'm very excited about, but we could, we could return to that. So, I yeah. mean, in terms of these different musical cultures, um, I think a, a couple of things come to mind. So one of them is Shabi music and people like Ahmed Adawaya. So in the case of Mahraganat that you mentioned, this, this word that literally means festivals takes off really during the Arab Spring, there's been a lot of attention paid to that genre, especially when it comes to criticisms of uh, it being vulgar, of it leading to the contamination of taste. But something to realize is all these criticisms are not new. We see the same exact language playing out going all the way back to the 1970s. In the case of Shabi music, where it is charged with destroying public taste, contaminating Egyptian culture, leading to the downfall of music. I mean, we had someone compare it to being more dangerous than cocaine in terms of this music circulating on tapes. Along the lines of someone saying Mahraganat's more dangerous than, than COVID more recently. So with Adawaya, he's someone that becomes this, this pioneer of popular music, of Shabi music. He's someone that performs in colloquial Egyptian Arabic. He sings about everyday issues. He's born prior to the 52 revolution in Egypt, and he learns how to perform not in an elite music conservatory, like someone like Abdul Halim Hafiz did. He learns on Muhammad Ali Street in Cairo, this road that's renowned for its performers. And basically, he ends up crossing paths with this guy, Mamouna Shanawi, who was a leading lyricist. And they end up releasing this cassette in 73 with the song of Sahad Dahambo, which talks about Two two thirsting individuals. One of them is um, a, a grown man, the implication like being thirsting for a lover. And the other one is a baby crying on the ground that's thirsting for a bottle. This is something that we would say in nowadays parlance goes viral. It sells over a million copies and elicits a ton of criticism from cultural elites. Adawiya would go on to sing about things like traffic and Zahma Yodonia Zahma, about all these topics that in no way aspired to play a part in the making of model citizens. And so you have all of these different responses to his music, which would not have circulated, would it not have been for cassettes. So he performed basically at back alley weddings, but was someone who was not permitted to ever perform on state controlled Egyptian radio. And that goes for other Shabi uh, singers as well. 
And so in addition to that shabby music, we also have people that directly undermined the stories the Egyptian government was telling. So individuals like Ahmed Fouad Nigam, the colloquial poet, Sheikh Amem, who basically set his lyrics to song, and they rewrote the stories that the state was telling. When it came to the 67 war, when it came to Richard Nixon's visit in 74, Valérie Jacquard d'Estaing's visit from France the year after, the bread riots of 77, they flipped the script on all of these events through informal cassette recordings recorded at political protests in the artist's apartment, mm -hmm. in the streets. We hear people talking, laughing, joking in the background to these tracks. And those tapes are then pirated. And they all, all circulate informally, ending up in places as far away as London, Paris, Tunis, Algiers. And these are all places that Sheikh Imam himself wouldn't even be able to visit until 1984, when he's permitted to travel abroad for the first time, goes to all these venues, performs in people's living rooms and amphitheaters, and everyone's singing the lyrics to his song. How? They never heard him in person through informal cassettes that reached all these places before he did. And so he's someone also that, for, with the exception of a very short stint where the state tried to co-opt him and Ahmed Fouad Nigam, bring them on the radio and have them perform more nationalist songs, mm -hmm. which were also in their repertoire, that lasts for uh, about less than a year. He's also someone that's never heard on state-controlled radio that reaches a wider audience through audio cassettes. And so that's something that I wanted to really dive into in the book because so often when it comes to popular culture when it comes to the middle east the focus is overwhelmingly on state sanctioned voices people right. like um kuthum abd halim hafiz muhammad abdul wahab and one of the consequences of that that i think we need to think seriously about is that we as scholars as observers we end up assigning importance to the same performers who were deemed important by repressive regimes and so that's something that I try to, to complicate in the course of this book by highlighting people like Adawaya, Sheikh Imam, um, and others that challenge prevailing authorities. And it's interesting how you can locate these by looking at what was selling on the on the stands, but also you, you spend a lot of time looking at um, the, the old weeklies, the old newspapers, the tabloids, and seeing what people were actually talking about. Yeah, I think, the, uh, so the press, in addition to something like the Suez Canal or businesses is also nationalized and there's direct oversight. And I think that's led various scholars in the past to write off the popular press. These are weeklies that are almost like tabloids. They fall kind of between Newsweek and People Magazine or something in the US. And so a lot of people have not taken them seriously as academic sources. And something that I tried to do by providing a very sustained, in-depth reading of a few periodicals over a decades long period is to show how they can be read uh, against the grain and how a lot of items in the press, things like those popular crime reports, for instance, mm -hmm. they're intended to glorify the police. Oh, look, the police arrested all these thieves and all of these smugglers. They're so wonderful, seamless coordination, completely effective. In reality though, they reveal a thriving black market for cassette technology. We have photographs of thieves standing right. next to 50 cassette players. They're not using those players for personal use. They're taking them and they're selling them. So something that actually is supposed to glorify the police shows the limits of policing at this point in time. That's and brilliant. so that's something that I try to spend some time with those magazines, in addition to cassette recordings, films, memoirs, oral interviews, 
um, all of these other materials that are all outside of the inaccessible Egyptian National Archives. So I can't let you uh, get away without uh, going through one of the uh, one of the most uh, interesting of the extended vignettes in the book, which is the uh, you, you already referred to it, the uh, the Nixon Papa uh, recording and, uh, you know, the the way the popular art, the popular music treated uh, Nixon's glorious welcome in, in Egypt. It's almost a whole chapter, I believe. Uh, very interesting. Walk yeah, us through so that a little is, bit. Sure. Um, so this is one of my favorite parts of the story. And um, my next project, I'm actually going to be writing um, on Sheikh Hamam and what his life and legacy can teach us about misinformation, uh, national narratives, and the making of the modern Middle East more broadly. And so this is something that inspired this, this second book project that's in the works. I mean, when it comes to Hamam, he's someone that is uh, almost two revolutions bookend his life. So he's born a year before the 1919 revolution, and then he resurfaces during the 2000 revolution, years after he passed away. Uh, he's someone who loses his sight shortly after birth. Uh, he pursues uh, Islamic studies and is actually dismissed from an Islamic institute in Cairo for listening to Quranic recitation over the radio, hmm. which at the time was viewed as a gateway to unbelief, irrespective of the content that it was broadcasting. Interesting. So he links up with Ahmed Fouad Negam. He sets his uh, his verses to song and his songs, a number of them go on to challenge those state engineered accounts. In terms of Nixon, Nixon's someone who comes to Egypt in the summer of 74. This is during the throes of Watergate, this crisis that is going to irreparably damage his image. And Ammar Sadat rolls out an actual red carpet for Nixon. So he lands at a Cairo airport that's been closed down for him. He's greeted by this honor guard. They get in together in this jet black Cadillac that they it has been custom built so they could stand in it. And then they proceed in this convoy of over 200 vehicles from the airport to Oba Palace, moving a few miles per hour in the scorching sun so they could greet Egyptian spectators mm -hmm. who are shouting things like, long live Nick. Nixon, long of Sadat, welcome to Nixon, a man of peace. We trust Nixon. They're holding up these posters that have all been mass produced of their bus and black and white Nixon and Sadat. And there was even an office that was responsible for coordinating Nixon's popular reception. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the state is something that invests significantly when it comes to planning and scripting this welcome, which then also involves a, a train ride from Cairo to Alexandria, and basically the same exact parade playing out in Alexandria. Nixon, or not Nixon, uh, M.M. and Nigam see all of this unfolding around them, and Nigam pens the song Nixon Baba, or our Father Nixon, or Papa Nixon, however you want to translate it. And it basically cements the very link that Nixon wants to erase between himself and Watergate. It alludes to that on multiple occasions. It talks about Nixon's frail state, it discusses the possibility of him being no longer around. And in the song, a man refuses to greet Nixon out of ignorance. At the same time, it offers a complete jarring counter narrative of the reception in Egypt. At one point, he compares the state engineered procession to a, a Zephyr, a wedding procession, mm -hmm. where Nixon, the U.S. president, plays the part of a groom that one married as a last resort this pathetic figure. And Mam audibly spits on Nixon in the recording that you can still hear to this day now on YouTube, where some of these cassettes have migrated. And so this is one of many official stories that 
Negam along with a man reversed through informal audio cassettes. And in the case of Nixon Baba, that actually becomes the event's unofficial soundtrack. So long after people forgot about the official reception, this song continues to circulate. It's something that was performed by choirs in Egypt. It's something that continues to uh, gain traction on uh, Facebook groups, to move around on YouTube, Discog, SoundCloud, all of these things. And so it has endured long past the efforts of Sadat to monopolize the meaning of that event. And so one of the things which is fascinating here as you're describing this is just the way that these cassettes um, give us, they become an archive of a different uh, way of reading the past, to hearing it rather than just being limited to the text or the image. Yeah, I mean, this, exactly. This idea of archiving is also central. I mean, I think with regards to those cassette recordings, one of the things that I try to illustrate in the book is that so often when we think about popular culture, whether in the form of music or films or graphic novels or anything along those lines, we oftentimes invoke it to complement what we already know about the past. So we'll cite Um Kulthum to talk about Nasser's Pan-Arab agenda or something like that. One of the things that I tried to do in the book is to show how popular culture if we critically examine it, it could radically reshape what we think we know about the past. Mm -hmm. So were it not for something like that song with Sheikh Hamam, we would come away with a very different understanding of Nixon's vision. Much more along the lines of the official story that Sadat was telling. In terms of archives, I mean, this is something that's a, a central focus. It's one of the themes that I explore in the book, uh, a chapter is dedicated to it. The book's organized as a mixtape. I look at consumption, uh, um, uh, consumption, the law, taste, circulation, history, archives. And archives were of critical importance to me because so often when we think about them, it's in the context of all these obstacles when it comes to research clearances being very restrictive, when it comes to state collections and their inaccessibility. Um, all of these documents being missing are not available to us as scholars. I wanted to think about the opportunities inspired by these obstacles, because when it comes to Egypt, the National Archives are not accessible after 1952. And so that's why we see so many more books on Egypt under the British occupation than on Egypt's recent past. And I think this is something that beyond some academic exercise of like rethinking the archive, this is something that's of critical importance, because if we don't do this as scholars, we cede control of the past to people in the present who are actively trying to monopolize it. And so something that I try to do in the book is look at Egypt's shadow archive. This constellation of materials, because that's included, and these formal and informal sites that exist outside of the Egyptian National Archives that also enable us to tell very different stories about the past that aren't in those inaccessible documents, even if we could access them in the first place. And so this is something that I try to think through when it comes to something like the, the methodological horizons of Middle East scholarship. How, what do we use to tell the stories we tell? And how do certain materials enable us to tell fundamentally different stories? And of course, it resonates uh, with uh, recent scholarship uh, on, on protests, for example, that have paid a lot of attention to the the, the sound and the audio component of this and the, the chants and the marches and the songs and the like. So there, there seems to be a fertile... Um, you know, kind of development uh, methodologically and theoretically here, kind of across disciplines. Sure. And and sound is everywhere. We just need to listen to it and we need to listen for it. 
because all of these all of these clues are available in all of these sources. I think it just takes it takes an intentional multi-sensory approach in all of our scholarship to really pay more attention to people's sensory existences, whether we're historians, political scientists, anthropologists, we can all benefit from the critical study of sound and the senses more broadly. Okay, we've been speaking to Andrew Simon of Dartmouth about his new book, Media of the Masses, Cassette Culture in Modern Egypt. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. And now we're going to turn to one of the worst uh, humanitarian disasters that struck the Middle East in many, many years, uh, the earthquake which hit southern Turkey and northern northern Syria. And uh, we've assembled a group of scholars who worked on various dimensions of Turkish-Syrian politics and uh, developmental and um, humanitarian relief to ask them to reflect a bit on what happened, why it's happened the way that it is, and uh, some of the political effects. And uh, at first, we're going to turn to uh, Hasret Dikiji Bilgin of Bilgi University. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the politics of this in Turkey, how Erdogan has handled it, and what the political effects of this disaster might be? Thank you, Mark. Uh, actually, Erdogan uh, is trying to handle the things in the way that he has been trying to do it in the uh, last decade, uh, especially since 2016. I mean, he has a double strategy in such crises, and Turkey had so many crises. I mean, uh, terrorist attacks, natural disasters. We just had a fire, a huge wildfire the last summer, uh, and floods. So uh, the Erdogan government has faced lots of natural uh, disasters, that the state institutions fail to respond effectively and quickly. And uh, in such situations, he has a double um, strategy. Regarding his own audience, uh, allies and waters, he relies on the polarizing power of post-truth. Mm -hmm. I mean, with his social media trolls, cabinet members, pro-government journalists, and uh, members of his uh, uh, allied party, the National Action Party, uh, they keep claiming that at all media outlets that the opposition is lying, they are funded by the foreign powers, and they are trying to undermine the power of the state and the government, and they are lying that the state is responding quite well. And if there is any, any mistake, it is because the opposition is uh, obstructing. So trying to consolidate its base despite the obvious failures uh, of the policies that it's not actually their failure. They are giving a war against the whole world. I mean, we know this attitude that this is not only Erdogan specific. This is the same discourse, the same strategy that is uh, employed by Putin and uh, other politicians from the same way. Towards the uh, opposition, always trying to discredit, uh, discredit the opposition, uh, never getting into any collaboration, despite the uh, scope of the disasters, and trying to prevent the opposition to succeed, like trying to cut their links to the people, uh, put new uh, restraints on their actions. Uh, I, mean, I mean, you can't believe it, but the government actually... Um, apprehended 
three uh, disaster relief uh, volunteers from Greece, from the Greek uh, Communist Party, claiming that they are trying to do something else rather than uh, disaster relief. What is new is, I mean, not new, but became quite explicit, is that every action of his is now driven by his own fear. We have concrete reason to believe that from the early hours of the earthquake, the ministers of the interior and the defense tried to organize the armed forces to be stationed immediately to the disaster zone. And we have also reason to believe that it was stopped from the top by Erdogan himself. Uh, and then we saw how uh, the national aid, uh, disaster aid organization failed to reach. I mean, you can't believe it, but the Bulgarians and even the Finnish went to the disaster zone before the government organization, before the state institutions. This is a scandal. And this is because, I mean, his fear, he doesn't, I mean, he didn't even send them minors. I mean, something you do, textbook in every country. You send the armed forces, you send the minors because they know how to handle stuff in such situations. But he uh, was scared that there would be some kind of uh, mass protests because uh, of the birth of the uh, disaster. And he tried to uh, prevent everyone. And these state institutions failed. First of all, to respond, first of all, because there is no longer any merit-based appointment. The wide range of corruption destroyed, uh, has destroyed all these uh, institutions. Uh, and it's also because of the centralization that might even envy Stalin. Everybody has to act after the approval from the top, no matter which institution you are. And I mean, he cannot evaluate every institution's policy on time. So this and, and he read, particularly neglected opposition control districts. Isn't that right? Exactly. Opposition control districts, uh, Kurdish villages, uh, Alevi districts. And I mean, we are seeing live uh, evidence of this from the uh, local media outlets that Although it has almost uh, it's two weeks uh, now from the first uh, earthquake, there are still villages uh, populated by the uh, Arabic Alawites, the Nusairi in the region, uh, that has never uh, received any help, and th that they were hit the worst in the last uh, two earthquakes because they had to go back to their buildings. They didn't receive the tents. They didn't receive any aid, so they had to go back. What, what we're going to let's turn now to a Liesl Hintz of uh, Johns Hopkins University sites. Um, and let's talk about this a little bit more then in terms of the underlying political economy of this and how this fits into what Husret was telling us about the, the broader politics that underlies the failure of the disaster relief. Yeah, thanks, Mark. And thank you so much for using this platform to, to draw attention to these issues. I think it's extremely important. Um, I think Hasfret really nicely um, summed up, it encapsulated um, some of the problems that that were present even before the earthquake struck uh, on February 6th. Um, the, the disaster response, of course, was hampered immensely by the centralization, as she said, um, of institutions, um, of pulling all of the power, of consolidating all of the power and the decision making within one person's hand, not even just, you know, the, the state itself, but one person's hand. 
um, the Disaster and Emergency Management Presidency, AFAD, um, you know, you had extremely well-trained personnel who were waiting to be deployed, volunteers working with them, waiting to be deployed who weren't or who got to the zones and had no equipment. It was just, it was an absolute mess of, of deployment. Um, and, and then, of course, as Hasret indicated, there was also sort of the prevention of the opposition from trying to provide aid as well. So there's a clear politicization of this. So that centralization that happened with the incremental consolidation of the power in the executive, including the switch to the executive presidency in 2018, um, is sort of part and parcel of the, the style of governance of, of Erdogan. Um, you know, you see it in the media and the control over media. Um, you see it in so many different realms. Um, and I think one of the things that's important to consider is the political economy of this. So if you look at the, the way in which the AKP has been able to mobilize a lot of its support base, it's through the immense growth that the AKP was able to preside over. Um, but a lot of that growth was coming from the construction industry. And the construction industry uh, is, is one that is deeply tied with crony capitalism. Um, you have these gigantic holding companies that have media interests, like I mentioned, sort of the consolidation of the media, right? So you'll have a holding company that has a media outlet um, that is you know, disseminating pro-government messaging. And it's doing that because it's getting tenders from the government, because it's getting low interest loans, because it's you know, not having to adhere to the regulations that uh, that other companies should. The One of the huge problems is that there are laws on the books that after the 1999 earthquake, which was devastating um, in Istanbul that killed over 17,000, there are all of these laws about building regulation and you don't build in that zone. You do not build an airport on top of a fault line like you have in Hatay, right? That so impacted the ability of response workers to be able to get there. Um, but part and parcel, these, you know, no-go zones were sold off and they were sold off to pro-government industries. Um, and so not only do you have, you know, this incredible construction boom and so over construction of these areas that shouldn't be touched of earthquake assembly zones that were taken over of military zones that were taken over for construction of national forests that were taken over for construction um Hasrat mentioned the wildfires that that's been a huge problem um but you also have uh this situation in which the super consolidated presidency can pass zoning amnesty laws that allow companies to purchase a permit to keep their not up to code building or illegally built building in place. And that was done in the run up to the 2018 elections. And they amassed three to four billion US dollars in doing so. So there are there's crony capitalism that is baked into the structures that collapsed. Any country would have been shook by those earthquakes, by the, the number of them, the magnitude. We saw several more yesterday. But there were structures that should have held. There were teams that should have responded, and they didn't. And the implication is a lot more people died than might have been expected, given all of these uh, state pathologies. Probably tens of thousands more than should have, yeah. Or Let's than would have, I should 
So let's turn to the other epicenter of the earthquake, uh, Syria, especially northwestern Syria, which uh, has also faced uh, tremendous human suffering and um, and I would say kind of impacts that go beyond simply natural disaster, but have clear political um, uh, roots. Uh, we're going to speak now with Rana Khoury of the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Um, and Rana, tell us a little bit about how this played out in the Syrian context, in the regime-controlled areas, but also in rebel-controlled northwestern Syria, where virtually no aid um, was able to travel in those decisive uh, early days. Thanks, Mark, and thanks for holding this uh, conversation and including me in it. Um so I'll begin just with a kind of a landscape uh, because the fault lines of the earthquake were somewhat overlapping with, but also not constrained by international borders and lines of control vis-a-vis -vis the Syrian conflict. So in Southwest Turkey, um, the epicenter of the earthquake is also home to hundreds of thousands of Syrian refugees. Turkey hosts over 3 million Syrians, and many of them are right across those borders in southwest Turkey. So refugees there were among the severely affected alongside uh, Turkish citizens. And then that spread to northwest Syria, uh, largely controlled by rebels and part of which is controlled by Turkey itself and into central Syria as well, held by the government. Um, so these various lines and divisions um, are areas in which the distribution of humanitarian aid has been severely contested since the start of the Syrian conflict. When it began in 2011, humanitarian aid organizations were constrained from reaching areas that the regime of Bashar al-Assad did not want them to reach, um, which were primarily areas that were ultimately opposition strongholds and then rebel-held territories. Um, so when the earthquake struck two weeks ago, um, you were looking at a situation in the distribution of humanitarian aid where some large parts of international aid goes through regime-held Damascus, and other parts of international aid go through the border between Turkey and Syria to reach those rebel-held areas. That line... Uh, across the border to Northwest Syria was inaccessible in the days following the earthquake, just as you've said. Um, part of that was, it was said that the roads were potentially dangerous and impassable. And so Syria, Northwest Syria did not see the search and rescue efforts in the critical first few days of, of the earthquake. Ultimately, aid did begin to pass through. It was very slow coming. At first, it was just the distribution that was already having gone there. It wasn't specific to the earthquake. Um, but there were and are teams of Syrians on the ground who were responding. Um, there are lots of civil organizations in northwest Syria who have been at the forefront of efforts to distribute and implement relief over the years of the conflict. And so they were really the first responders in the wake of the earthquake as well. In regime-held Syria, people were also severely affected and people in regime-held Syria have been having a very hard couple of years um, as well. On top of the conflict itself, there's been a severe financial downturn um, 
overlapped with the effects of Western-led sanctions against Syria and the fact that the Syrian government, although it now controls most of Syrian territory, it doesn't control certain critical resources. It's um, a system that's really corrupted um, and in, including by the kinds of crony capitalism that was being described in Turkey. Um, and so regular Syrians in government-held territory have been for years now operating on just a couple of hours of electricity a day, um, barely able to afford fuel or basic needs. And so this earthquake, which did shake Hama, Latakia, um, and Aleppo under government-held control, also piled disaster upon disaster for Syrians. Now, as again was described in the Turkish case, the response has been unfortunately very politicized where the needs of civilians in both parts of the affected areas um, are not being adequately addressed due to the politicization of aid. The regime continues to try to control where to aid, where aid goes and to whom, um, and has actually been quite successful in its campaign to use this earthquake as an opportunity to ease the sanctions on Syria. Um, and so has achieved getting um, more support. It was also supported by Arab countries and some other countries that sent relief in. Um, but Northwest Syria has, you know, does not have the benefit of those sort of foreign relations um, and has, you know, been stuck between a rock and a hard place of trying to get more of that cross-border aid in and, um, living under the sort of contested cross-line aid that the from government-held territory that has not really been making its way through. Let's zoom out a little bit. Uh, talk next to Reva Dingra of the Brookings Institution at Harvard University. Um, many people have observed the patterns that uh, Rana Khoury was just describing, and they see it as a broader pathology of the, the global system for distributing international aid and assistance. And they see this as, as kind of a typical of broader failures in multi multilateral governance. Tell us a little bit about how this looks from the gl more global perspective of disaster relief and, and its potential failures. Uh, hi, Mark. Thank you for for having me on as well. And yeah, I want to I want to talk about exactly that as well as what that will mean uh, for the coming days of the Syria response. So what we saw, as Rana mentioned, in the early days of the response was uh, as the UN Office uh, for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs chief has acknowledged a failure of the multilateral system that was built exactly to respond to these sort of crises, natural disasters, uh, displacement, destruction of homes in a moment of need fail uh, to save people who were dying under the rubble. And, you know, as, as Rana pointed out, these are for political reasons, explicitly political reasons, even though Turkey authorized uh, trucks to go through two additional border crossings on February 8th, the UN was reluctant to do so without Security Council authorization, and they didn't meet until the following weekend. So one entire week after the earthquake, um, when, you know, many people who were still alive uh, under under the debris uh, were no longer able to be saved. So in this moment, I mean, this this office and, and the reason that these 
sort of international coordination mechanisms were built were to help populations when uh, the state was either unwilling or unable to do so. We saw in, for example, the Haiti earthquake response, a lot of criticism around delay uh, of the UN forces who were already on the ground there um, as peacekeepers in Haiti from uh, assisting in search and rescue operations, for example. And this sort of repeated... uh, failure, um, as they themselves have acknowledged, to to meet the needs um, in a time of disaster. And, uh, you know, to their credit, uh, the UN has escalated support in, in the subsequent weeks. They've issued a flash appeal for $400 million uh, for inside Syria, as well as a flash appeal for Turkey. And, um, support in the next few weeks is going to be very crucial. I think the main uh, issues that I'll be following and that I think will uh, directly affect how this response is implemented is a if the local actors that were already the first responders, as Rana mentioned, who were already on the ground uh, providing uh, support to their own communities can uh, receive the benefits of uh, escalated assistance, whether those three border crossings that were authorized to be opened uh, for a three-month period of time, whether those crossings can be extended beyond uh, that three-month window, because the needs will be long-term. Um, so in, in Syria right now, more than 9,600 buildings have collapsed. You have uh increases in cholera cases, you have thousands of people who are now homeless and without shelters, and what shelters do exist uh, in terms of tented settlements are already overcrowded. So the needs will continue in the next few months, and I think it'll be really imperative to ensure that uh, these political factors don't hinder getting support to a population that was already, you know, facing dire needs prior to the earthquake itself. And that raises a kind of a big issue that's constantly plagued uh, these questions of humanitarian relief and have really come into stark stark focus in Syria. On the one hand, you have the sanctions, which are designed to punish Assad for war crimes committed during the, the last decade. On the other hand, you have the very real human suffering that's being caused right now. And then and, and in the middle of that, you have a polarized and stalemated Security Council. Reva, can you say a little bit more then about how the international aid community thinks about that in terms of these urgent needs going up against these political, um, you know, these political imperatives? Yeah, and I mean, this is something that analysts have commented on. I think Amnesty International released a report last year saying that, you know, in a situation where it's a crisis and the government is unwilling to help the population, the UN can uh, sort of bypass Security Council authorization to deliver aid uh, to populations in need. And um, it's that guidance is, I would say, uh, quite different from what the UN is following in, in actual practice. So it's being pretty cautious. And, uh, you know, critics have argued that it's been deferential to uh, the Syrian government in a variety of ways. The in Within the 
uh, Sierra response, I mean, WHO, WFP have been plagued by corruption scandals. There was a report that came out last year on uh, contractors uh, that were being hired from Assad's relatives and uh, the regime elite. So in terms of how I would say, I mean, I can't speak for how humanitarian actors are thinking about this situation, but I do think that uh, there needs to be a serious rethink of the current approach to assistance delivery in uh, Syria when it's so heavily constrained and so heavily politicized that in in these sort of severe moments, um, such as a cholera outbreak or such as a polio outbreak or an earthquake, uh, the actors that are supposed to be helping people aren't able to do what they were created to do. Rana, I want to ask you a somewhat similar question. Uh, you made a really good point about how the, the natural disaster doesn't care about international borders, um, and yet the effects of the uh, of the natural disaster are very much shaped by where you happen to be in terms of those borders. Um, could you just say a little bit more then about kind of how you see this in terms of the, um, the, the effects and the possibility of addressing some of those disparities? You know, um, shortly after the earthquake, I had a naive moment um, that I, I shouldn't have had after 12 years of studying Syria, where I thought, you know, there are civilians uh, affected on all sides of this. Perhaps this is a chance to overcome some of the deep political divisions in the country. Um but if anything, I think it's actually gone the other direction where the problems and the politicization have deepened even further because this is occurring at a time, Mark, when, um, as I mentioned earlier, the sort of the war as such is somewhat um, at a stalemated end of sorts where there is clear government control over large parts of Syria. Um, and the rebel-held parts of the Northeast and the Northwest are constantly challenged by that uh, status quo. Um, and so rather than this being a moment to overcome and produce lines for cross-line aid, for instance, um, this has been a sort of pitting civilians against civilians <laughs> uh, situation. Um, where the you know people in government held territory you know many of some of whom um have argued that sanctions have been you know really choking um the regime have fought for the end of sanctions um and that's just there's a lot of misinformation around what the actual effects of sanctions have been um there's always been a humanitarian exemption to sanctions it's never been enough um of an exemption because humanitarian organizations are constrained um by the other elements of a financial sector so if they can't use banks for instance then they are hampered despite the exemption um, but at the same time the facts are that the largest donors um, of humanitarianism in Syria over the last 12 years have been those western governments primarily the U.S. has been the largest donor to humanitarian aid in Syria for the last 12 years um, and these are rather than sort of known facts these are facts that are just covered up by sort of myths and disinformation. Um, and so it hasn't been a chance to overcome 
those divisions, I'm afraid. Uh, meanwhile, people in Idlib, um, rebel-held northwest Syria, um, you know, the largest parts of that population are internally displaced people. There's someone, something like 4 million IDPs in Idlib, uh, people who have already lost everything once and now suffering um, even more, and their humanity is not seen across those conflict lines. Um, so it's a really, you know, unfortunate um, state of affairs, and and I'm afraid that this wasn't the opportunity I naively sort of hoped for when this began. This this phenomenon of entrenching existing political lines and uh, exacerbating polarization it tracks quite closely with H- what Husrat was saying about uh, the effects in Turkey. Maybe we should go back to Turkey now, and uh, Husrat, maybe if you could tell us a little bit more then about you know the the maybe the longer term political effects of this. There's an extremely important election coming up, and uh, you know what 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 can we project about how this might affect the political landscape over the coming uh, over the coming months okay um i think the results will be mixed and it will depend on to what extent uh, the government will be willing to continue with its current aggressive strategy then for the time being i mean apparently being scared of a mass movement the universities without around uh, the country without any convincing explanation uh, were make uh, go go virtual and uh, they don't even accept a hybrid uh, teaching this is ridiculous because uh, middle level schools are open quranic schools have been open from the early days but the universities have to go online and they say that it's because the uh, university students from the region uh, cannot uh, go back uh, cannot go back to their buildings but there is this question where will they find computers uh how will they uh, access internet because even the gsm op- uh, operatives aren't functioning well uh, this is only the political fear so uh and uh, i mean as a long-term strategy of the government uh, uh the government is actually testing the waters talking about delaying the elections uh, and trying to keep the students, the university students, as much as possible in uh, their homes and trying to come up with creative ideas to prevent the people to come together, even for uh, humanitarian aid reasons. Uh, but it seems that the opposition is handling the situation better than that we expected. They have been quite clear, I mean, the this is a marvelous thing because, I mean, opposition has not been very successful in the past, which is part of the reason why they could consolidate the AKP government's power. But from the beginning of the early, uh, from the early minutes of the disaster, the opposition was there. Uh, they, uh, the opposition parties mobilized their all resources, didn't fall into the traps uh, of fighting with the government agencies despite all those provocations. So I think uh, if they cannot delay the elections, which I think that it's not very likely, maybe not in May, but in June or July, there will be elections. It seems from uh, as of February 21st, of course, uh, unless something new happens. Uh, It will be a disaster for the government, I think. And it will be a... uh, 
huge problem for the opposition in terms of uh, making sure that there, uh, the, the, there won't be electoral fraud. Because now we don't know how many people are actually dead or are still under the rubble. Uh, but, uh, for example, the apportionment of the uh, parliamentarians to each electoral district uh, will not be changed. The Supreme Electoral Council just uh, announced it. So despite the number of uh, the casualties, they assigned the same number of the uh, parliamentarians as it was in the previous election. There will be other problems. Where will you put the ballot boxes? Uh, and they will try to prevent the opposition and the civil society organizations to go there and actually uh, supervise the elections. Uh, so it will be quite turmoil, but uh, I have my faith uh, in the current situation that the oppositional groups from all kinds of or, uh, ideological orientations uh, will bury their hatchets and act in unison. Maybe I'm being too optimistic, but uh, this is what I see as of today. Well, Liesl, maybe uh, I'll ask the same question to you, but maybe one point I wanted to uh, bring up, uh, maybe you could address, is that, as Rana pointed out, uh, there are large concentrations of Syrian refugees in southern Turkey, and the opposition had actually been quite hawkish uh, and anti-refugee in the time leading up to the election, um, or uh, leading up to the earthquake. And has that changed, and how might that aspect of it factor into the ability of the uh, the opposition to mount this kind of unified challenge to Erdogan? So it hasn't changed as much as I think we would like it to. Um, I think, like Rena, I'd like to think that these kinds of crises can bring out the, the humanity um, in people. But we saw, you know, disinformation about Syrians looting. Um, we saw um, a, a, a Republican People's Party main opposition party mayor saying, you know, they're trying to send the Syrians here. We don't want them here. Um, so it's absolutely the case that the opposition has been pushing hard on the xenophobic anti-Syrian rhetoric. Um, uh, and, you know, the, the AKP is interesting because they had initially welcomed um, a lot of Syrians in um, with open arms. These are our, you know, Muslim brothers that we should would welcome. And then when they realized that that was not giving them the popular vote, then they they switched their position. But but no, the opposition, um, I think, has has continued to uh, kind of see Syrians as uh, not welcome, as draining existing resources. And I think one of the things that is really concerning is, as was brought up earlier, is that there are so many Syrians and Kurds in these areas. And so if we're talking about, you know, relocating peoples, you have tremendous nationalist sentiment that have been that has been whipped up specifically against Syrians, but also against Kurds. Um, Kurds have been vilified by the AKP since the breakdown of the ceasefire with the PKK in 2015. Um, and Kurds have been kind of pointed to even, um, you know, those who uh, are, are not part of the PKK, the sort of wide brush of terrorism has been used to vilify, um, you know, to ban Kurdish singers from the stage, uh, you know, because they're supporting terrorist propaganda in some way. So, um, I think that has been, to get back to Hasrat's point, that has been an issue that the opposition has also struggled with in terms of how do we kind of reconcile with the Kurdish 
issue. You have a number of nationalist actor, actors in the opposition coalition um, that have not been willing to reach out to Kurds. And so I think that when you have a situation in which you know resources are going to be distributed, people are going to be relocated, those identity tensions that have been so politically polarized by the government are going to really continue to, to fester. So you're less optimistic than Husrat that uh, the opposition will be able to form a, a unified front to challenge the AKP? I absolutely agree with Hasrat's assessment that, um, you know, Kemal Kalichdurl, the head of the main opposition party, um, I think has been uh, really effective in his messaging. Um, as she said, you know, not kind of falling into the trap of playing with government games, but really um, using uniting rhetoric. I mean, it was it was extraordinarily disconcerting to see the tone that President Erdogan took immediately in the aftermath of the earthquake of, you know, this like glowering expression on the, the TV about how we're going to we're keeping notes and we're going to I mean, all these AKP figures are talking about how we're taking notes and we're going to find all of you who are sharing disinformation rather than we have just experienced this massive humanitarian catastrophe. We're going to unite and we're going to, you know, um, address this together. But it was very much about trying to, to vilify the opposition. And as I was talking about earlier, they've put these laws in place that allow them to do that and tilt the playing field in their favor. And there have been disinformation laws that they've put in place that also allow them um, to to marginalize and to criminalize opposition. And so what you've seen is that those have been used to detain people who've been sharing information about the earthquake because it's provocation. So again, all of those kind of tools of the authoritarian toolkit that have been put in place, the, the government has been using here. So I guess in terms of the opposition's ability to unite, I think the Kurdish issue and, and identity issues in general will be difficult. Um, but you know, the the government's response is so wanting and the government has been able to kind of control the narrative for so long because of their connections to the media. But when you have this kind of disaster on top of economic crisis, that is felt at the very tangible and visceral personal level that I think makes it difficult for any kind of government messaging or populist economic handouts that they might be able to provide to be able to to you know win those those votes back, so I think it's it's going to be tough for for the government, um, and I hope the opposition I, I I hope the opposition isn't confounded by the identity politics trap that the government tries to set for it. It seems to be a, a may common. I add a Sorry, may I add a sentence to? Liesl's, yes, of course. Uh, I, mean, I totally agree with Liesl. I mean, she very aptly put uh, everything. I can summarize this just in one sentence. It's not the power of the opposition to unite, but it's the failure of the government to manage these crises, economic and political crises together, that might bring an oppositional victory. I think well, what I was going to say is just that, you know, it seems to be a common theme. I mean, it's uh, it's horrifying and tragic enough that we've had this, you know, once in a century uh, earthquake with its epicenter right on some of the most vulnerable and already traumatized populations on earth. Um, and yet uh, the response uh, has been very much affected by these polarized politics and institutionalized state failure. Thank you all for uh, joining us to talk about these grim issues. And um, I'm sure we'll be talking about them for years to come. Mm -hmm.